Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Nine: The Bloodhound, Part Two. Ford had wired to Miss Beringer to meet us at the station, and he whispered to me from time to time as we ran up to town his keen sense of satisfaction. "'Trust Miss Beringer not to have been idle while we were busy down here,' he exclaimed. "'She may probably be able to account for the way in which Madame Colucci has got back to her house. Ah, we have done for Madame Colucci at last. She has got the message of the carrier-pigeon by now, but she little guesses who are coming to pay her a visit.' He laughed as he spoke. The train began to approach its destination, and slowed down preparatory to coming into the station. "'The first thing to be done,' said Ford, "'is to take our prisoners to Bow Street, and have them formally charged. Then we will all go round and visit Madame in a party. Ah, here we are. I'll just jump out first, and have a look around for Miss Beringer.' He was the first to spring onto the platform, but look as he would, he could not find the lady detective. He came back presently to the rest of us with a crestfallen expression of face. "'It's odd,' he said. "'but it only shows that she's precious busy with our business. "'In all probability we will find her in the vicinity of the house. "'Now then, to look after the prisoners.' "'We took our men in a couple of cabs to Bow Street, "'and having seen them safe in the cells, drove straight to Madame's house. "'We had our last great capture to make in order to complete our work. "'As we neared the house a strange and almost ungovernable excitement took possession of me. "'Dufrayer and the two detectives were also silent. "'This was no time for speech.' My heart beat hard and fast. The stirring events of the last twenty-four hours had kept my brain going at fever heat, and week after the shock I had recently undergone, the strain began to tell. Once or twice I had to shake myself as a man in a dream. Truly, it was almost impossible to believe that in a few moments now Madame Colucci, the invincible, the daring, the all-powerful, would be our prisoner. We drew up at last at the well-known entrance, and spoke a few words to the man on duty— "'Oh, yes,' he replied. "'It's all right, and there's little or no news. The old woman has gone out once or twice to shop or get some food, but no one has entered the house.' "'What about Miss Beringer? Has she been here?' I asked. "'She was here yesterday evening,' he answered, "'but I have not seen her since.' Telling him to be in readiness without informing him of our convictions, we knocked loudly and rang imperiously at the door. After a very short delay, the same old woman appeared." She wore a sort of nightcap with a deep frill, and her piercing eyes confronted us from under the shaggy brows. She would only now vouchsafe to open the door a few inches. The place showed dimly in the half-light, for every blind was down and every shutter up. We could not even see the bent form of the old woman distinctly. "'Now look here,' said Ford. "'Your mistress is in this house somewhere. We happen to know it for an absolute fact. Will you take us to her or not? For find her, we will.' The woman gave a low laugh, suppressed as soon as uttered. "'You may look all you can,' she exclaimed. "'But madam is not here. You are welcome to search the house to your heart's content.' After saying the last word she mumbled something more to herself, and then shuffled off down the passage. We all entered the house. "'Now then,' said Ford, "'we'll search from cellar to garret, and we'll start this time downstairs.' We descended to the basement, and made a careful search through the various domestic offices, until once more we found ourselves in the first of Madame Colucci's magnificent laboratories. Ford switched on the electrics, and we looked around us. The place was in perfect order, but a curious ethereal distillate familiar to my nostrils hung in the air. I could not account for this at the time, though it filled me with a vague fear. 
we went on into the second laboratory, which was also in order, but was pervaded even more strongly by the same smell. At the farther end of this room was a very low doorway, studded with nails and iron bands. It looked as if it led into some cellar, and I suddenly remembered that we had not explored beyond its portals on the occasion of our first visit. The old woman had followed us into the laboratories, keeping well in the background. Ford, who seemed to observe the door at the same moment that I had, turned upon her eagerly. "'Where is the key of this door?' he said. "'I don't know,' she answered. "'Go and find it immediately. My mistress keeps the keys of that room, and until she returns you can't get in,' was the low reply. "'We'll soon see about that,' cried Ford. He turned to one of his men. "'Just go out,' he said, "'and tell the man on duty outside to get me an axe and a crowbar, and bring them here as soon as possible. Hurry as fast as you can, Johnson. There's not a moment to lose.' The man left us immediately. "'I think we shall find a clue at the other side of this locked door,' continued Ford, glancing at me. "'I hope Johnson will look sharp.' In less than a quarter of an hour the man returned with the necessary implements. "'Martin and I went together to fetch them,' he said. "'I'm sorry I could not be back sooner.' Ford seized the axe, and after a few smashing blows over the lock, inserted the bar, and the door burst open. He stepped inside immediately, but as he did so he started back, and a look of horror spread over his face. We all rushed in. "'Good God! We are too late!' he cried. "'She has escaped us!' "'Escaped? How?' I said, pushing forward. "'By death!' he answered. He went forward and knelt on the floor of the room. In the dim light I could plainly see the body of a woman. Ford struck a match and held it close to the face. It was the body of Madame Colucci. Yes, there she lay. The well-known face, in all its magnificent beauty, wore now the awful repose of death. Beside her was a small hypodermic syringe, and also an open bottle containing some clear solution. From that open bottle had issued the smell which pervaded the outer and the inner laboratory. For fully a moment we all gazed down at the dead woman in absolute silence. The sudden discovery had struck us dumb. How had she managed to obtain access to the house when it had been so closely watched was indeed a mystery. But after all it mattered nothing now. The end had come. A fit end to such a life as hers had been. We withdrew from the semi-darkness of the room into the outer laboratory. Dufrayer glanced round him. "'I wonder where the old woman can be,' he exclaimed. "'She was with us a moment ago,' I answered. "'Is she not here now?' "'No, she has gone back to her own haunts, most likely. Had we not better call her? It is impossible that Madame could have got into the house without her assistance.' "'I will go and have a look for her,' said Tyler. He left the laboratory, and we heard him moving about the house, his footsteps echoing as he went.' He presently came back. "'She is not in any of the kitchens,' he said. "'Perhaps she has gone upstairs. It does not matter much now, does it?' "'No,' I answered. And then once more we were all silent, too stunned to utter many words. I never saw any one look so utterly crestfallen as Ford. "'To think that Madame Colucci should have done us at the very end!' he exclaimed more than once. "'But it was like her, yes, it was like her.' The message which the carrier pigeon brought meant evidently more to her than lay on the surface, I remarked. She saw that she was hemmed in on every side, and was not the woman to be taken alive. "'Well, our search has come to an unlooked-for end,' said Ford again. "'But I do wonder,' he added, "'where Miss Berenger can be. It is very odd that we have not heard or seen anything of her.' Just then Dufrayer spoke. "'Hark!' he said. "'What is that?' We all stood still and listened. Far away, as if from some great distance, we heard a muffled cry. Again and again it was repeated. So faint was the sound that it seemed to be a way out in the street. 
"'What on earth can it be?' said Ford, looking round him anxiously. We moved softly round the laboratory, fearing to disturb the silent figure that lay in the awful repose of death. Again and once again we heard the cry. We stopped now and then to listen more closely. At last we reached a point where it seemed louder than anywhere else. I lay down and applied my ear to the flagstones. "'It is here!' I cried in intense excitement. "'Just beneath us! Listen!' Yes, it was now unmistakable. The sound came from beneath our feet. "'There is a cellar beneath this,' I said. "'Someone is immured here.' We searched rapidly for any sign of an entrance, but searched in vain. Once again the cry was repeated, but now it was as faint as that which might come from the throat of an infant. "'There is someone under here,' said Dufrayer, in a tone of the greatest excitement. "'We must smash the flagstone immediately.' Ford and Tyler both seized the crowbar. In a few moments they had loosened the stone, levered it up, and turned it over. As they did so, I perceived that there was a secret spring underneath, and had we looked long enough we could have removed the stone without the help of the crowbar. The moment it was turned up a breath of intensely cold air greeted us, and we saw immediately beneath our feet a dark circular hole. A low moan came up from the darkness. I gently lowered down the crowbar. It rested on something soft. Our excitement now was intense. Taking off my coat, I lowered myself through the hole, and holding on by my hands to the edge of the hole, my feet at last touched the solid ground. The cold that surrounded me was so intense that I almost gasped for breath. In what infernal region was I finding myself? I let go, and striking a match, looked round. Good God! A woman lay in this fearful dungeon. In another moment I had raised her, and as her face caught the light, I saw at a glance that it was Miss Beringer. The others quickly lifted her out, and I sprang up beside them. A pair of steel handcuffs were on her wrists. She was so icy cold from the awful chill of that subterranean chamber that at first she looked like one dead. Her mouth was torn and her hands swollen. When she was brought up into the warmer air, she lay to all appearance unconscious for several moments. Dufrayer quickly took a flask from his pocket, poured out some brandy, and put it to her lips. At first she could not swallow, then, to our great relief, a few drops went down her throat. She sighed audibly and opened her eyes. When she did so, she stared with a dazed expression all round. In less than a moment, however, full consciousness returned. A fierce light of understanding shone in the depths of her eyes, and she sat up. "'Have you got her?' she asked, gazing wildly round. "'We have, Miss Beringer, but not alive,' I answered. "'Now tell us how it is you are here. Tell us what happened, if you possibly can. But the old woman, Madame Colucci, have you got her?' "'Madame Colucci is dead,' I answered, thinking that she had not yet recovered her senses. "'But she is not,' she answered in a passionate voice. "'Take the old woman!' Ford turned to one of his men. "'Fetch her in,' he said. "'I have had a good search for her already,' said Tyler, "'and could not find her in any of the lower regions.' He spoke in a whisper, and I do not think Miss Beringer heard him. She was lying back again with closed eyes. Ford's man rushed out of the room, to return in a few moments. "'I have been all over the house,' he said, "'and cannot find the woman high or low. "'She is not here. "'She must have gone out when Martin and I "'were away fetching the axe and crowbar. "'I remember now we left the door open. "'We had no thought of anything else in our excitement.' "'Miss Beringer heard the words, "'and once again she roused herself. "'Now she sprang to her feet. "'I might have known it,' she said. "'Fools, all of you. "'How was it she escaped? "'Did you not recognize her?' "'But Madame Colucci is dead,' I said. "'Come and look for yourself, if you do not believe me. "'Here she lies in this very room. "'You scarcely know what you are saying just now "'after your own awful experience. "'But at least Madame has not escaped. "'She can never harm anyone again. 
she has gone to her long account. Miss Beringer uttered a hollow laugh. "'I am all right,' she said. "'It does not take me long to come back to my senses. Oh, what fools all you men are! Madame knew what she was about when she immured me in that living grave. Do you call that, Madame Colucci? Come and look at her again.' In the dim light of the laboratory we went and bent over the dead woman. I looked earnestly into the face, and then raised my eyes. Beyond doubt, poor Miss Beringer's senses had given way. The woman on whom I gazed was Madame Colucci. Feature for feature was the same. "'I see you doubt me,' said Miss Beringer. "'Well, listen to my story.' She stood before us and began to speak eagerly. We all clustered round her. Never before had we listened to a tale of more daring and unparalleled atrocity. "'I told you, Mr. Head,' she began, "'that I had work which would keep me in town. So I had.' From the time you went to Hastings yesterday I began to watch this house. I had all faith in the police officers you, Mr. Ford, had placed on duty, but I also felt certain that Madame, in her unbounded resources, would find a means to return. I knew that, if such were the case, it would need all a woman's keenest wit and intuition to foil her. She knew me as well as I knew her. It is true that she feared no man in London, but I do believe she had a wholesome dread of Anna Beringer. Well, my watch began— and for the first hour or so nothing occurred, but as soon as it was dark I saw the old caretaker, who showed you over the house on the first occasion, come out by the area door. I immediately followed her. She went straight to a shop in the Marylebone High Street, a small grocer's. She remained there for nearly half an hour. When she came out she was carrying a bag, quite a small one which apparently contained some provisions. I followed her again, watching her closely as I did so. Something about her walk first attracted my attention." The man on duty passed us as we went down Welbeck Street. I quickened my steps, and was in reality only two or three feet behind the woman, whom I now strongly suspected to be Madame Colucci herself. Just when we reached the open gate of the area, and as I was about to lay my hand on her shoulder, she turned quick as lightning upon me, and dashed into my face a liquid which must have been a solution of the strongest ammonia. The effect was instantaneous. I fell back, gasping for breath, and unable to utter a sound. She well knew what the effect of the ammonia would be, causing a sudden paralysis of the glottis, which would prevent my uttering a word for a couple of moments. Before I could recover myself, she had flung her arm around me, had dragged me down the area steps and into the house. The moment we got within, she slipped a pair of handcuffs on my wrist, and also gagged me. I was so paralyzed by the effect of the ammonia that I did not attempt to make the smallest struggle until too late. When she had gagged and bound me, she dragged me down a passage and into this laboratory where we are now standing. She then laid me on the floor and tied me down securely. When she had done this, she looked down at me and smiled a smile of devilish cruelty. "'Yes, Miss Beringer,' she said, "'you are a smart woman, the smartest with one exception in all London. You are interested in me. I am about to gratify that interest.' She left me for a few moments, and presently returned, dragging something heavy after her. Horror of horrors! It was a woman's dead body. I could scarcely believe the evidence of my own senses. She laid the body on the floor, and began to dress it in some of her clothes. Having done this, and having arranged it in the attitude of one who might have suddenly fallen and died, she came up to me again. Two years ago,' she said, speaking slowly, and bending her face to within about a foot of mine, there lived a woman in Naples who was in every respect my double. She was like me in every feature, in height, proportion, even to the expression of the face. She was a peasant woman, but so strong was her resemblance to me that twice the Neapolitan police arrested her, believing her to be me. They, of course, discovered their mistake, 
and she quickly recovered her liberty. The woman died, and though to all appearance she was buried, it was but a mock funeral, for I had been watching her, and I felt that in extremis she would be of the utmost use to me. I offered the woman's husband a large sum for her body. It was conveyed to my house in Naples, no matter how. The husband received his money, but in order that no tales might arise he was quickly afterwards put out of the way by one of my confederates. I kept the body at a very low temperature, and when I came to England in my own yacht brought it with me. Since then it has remained in a frozen chamber beneath the floor of the inner laboratory, thus retaining its likeness, as under such circumstances it would perpetually. The time has come when I must use my double in order to effect my own escape. The most vindictive tribunal in the world will pause at the edge of the grave." my enemies will suppose that I am dead, and I shall escape from their power. For the likeness to me is so perfect that detection cannot be made until the autopsy. By then I shall be well out of the country, for the men who are on watch for me will have withdrawn the moment the news of my suicide is known. I mean to put a hypodermic syringe and a bottle of strong poison near the body of the woman. Thus all will be complete. This is my last trump card. And now, Miss Beringer, she added, with a strange laugh, which I hear even now echoing in my ears, for your part in this ghastly game. In order to ensure your silence, I mean to consign you to the frozen chamber from which I have just taken this woman. Gagged and bound in that place, your tortures will not last long, for death will soon release you from them. But know that you can never again mingle with your fellow men. Know also that you made a mistake when you pitted your strength against mine, for mine is the stronger. Come." She raised me as if I were an infant, and lifted me into the inner room. I noticed that one of the flagstones was up. The gag prevented my speaking. The thongs which bound me prevented my struggling. Madame thrust me into the frozen chamber, and sealed the stone above me. There I have remained for the last fifteen hours. What I have endured is beyond description. At last I fancied I heard footsteps overhead. I made one frantic struggle, and managed to remove the gag from my lips. The moment I did so I shouted wildly, "'Thank God! You heard me in time!' Miss Beringer's words fell on our ears like the strokes of a hammer. We were far too stunned to reply. Madame had been in our very grasp, under our hands, and once more she had eluded. End of chapter 9